You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, GOLDENWEST. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today in the show, we have Patrick Rue. Patrick is the founder of Erosion Wine Company. Previously, he founded the craft beer company The Brewery in 2008 as his first job at a law school. He's on the short list of Master Cicerones, which for those who don't know, is like a master sommelier for beer. Enjoy my conversation with Patrick. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ryan. Well, it's great having you here. So I think the first thing to do is uh, before we start talking about beer and wine and all the good stuff is let's talk a little about your background and uh, early on how you got into all this. Yeah, I uh, was born and raised in Orange County, California, and uh, went, uh, I don't know, fairly typical, you know, um, Got got very mediocre grades, um, you know, nothing extraordinary, but um, I've always been into food. So uh, when I graduated uh, college, I decided I didn't know what to do. So I went to law school. That's what most people or a lot of people who don't know what to do go to, go to law school. And then I, I discovered homebrewing when I was in Chapman Law School, which is in Orange County, and uh, started started making more beer than I was studying. And uh, when when I graduated, I uh, chose to. Well, I, I took the bar and I, I flunked it, uh, which I say thankfully that I flunked it. Otherwise, I might be a lawyer right now. And uh, pretty quickly went on to start uh, start a brewery called The Brewery, uh, which has an interesting spelling. Includes my last name, Ru R U V, so it's B R U B R U E R Y. And uh, I did that for uh, about twelve years, and. Um, it's it's still continuing and uh, it's doing great. We have a few different few different brands. Um, we have the brewery, and then we have Brewery Crew, where we make kind of wild and sour beers using a lot of um, kind of unusual from um, unusual unusual bacteria and wild yeast. And then um, we have Offshoot Beer Company, which makes uh, pretty much just IPAs and hoppy beers. I never put two and two together with the spelling and how that has to do with your name. That's uh, that's a really interesting little fact. I bet a lot of people didn't know that either. Yeah, when I was homebrewing, I uh, named my homebrewery that, and um, I don't know. I always thought it was a little strange at first, and then I just got used to it. And when it came time to come up with the name, it just seemed seemed like the best choice. 
Was this in the late 90s or early 2000s? And what kind of resources were there? Like, Were you actually seeking out websites or message boards? Or where were you getting your information about homebrewing? Because now I feel like there's probably tons of websites and you can go on like Reddit and probably message boards and local shops even sell a lot of homebrewing gear. But how was it back then? Yeah, uh, let's see. I started homebrewing in 2003. And uh, you're right, there wasn't a whole lot of resources back then. Um, there was, um, yeah, there's a homebrew store called More Beer um, that's based up here in Northern California that does a, uh, a really nice job, has, you know, kind of everything you'd ever need and um, a great resource. And through that, I discovered the Brewing Network, which is a podcast um, uh, of all, all things homebrewing and also commercial beer production. Uh, you know, they'll get on notable brewers and they'll help tell their secrets and they'll tell some of their secrets and um uh you can try to you know use those um use what you learned on that podcast uh, from professional brewers and your own home brewing so that was definitely inspirational and a whole lot of homebrew competitions as well that's interesting how there is a podcast and kind of a little community there that was right around the time that the internet was kind of coming into its own too and you had you know, different resources and you were able to kind of seek out these different subcultures and things like that. Did you have any beers that you liked or brands? I mean, when I was growing up, I remember obviously Sierra Nevada and you had Sam Adams and of course they're, they're both huge now, but you know, kind of having that craft, uh, at least ethos maybe. Um, right. And then, you know, when I was in high school, it was, uh, a friend of mine gave me a t-shirt of Arrogant Bastard. And this was like 1997, I think, or 98. And at the time, I had no idea, you know, what it was. And I remember tasting it for the first time. Like, <laughs> it was so bitter and so strong. And like, I, I never tasted anything like it before. But did you have any favorites or even before then kind of coming up before you came into home brewing? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, funny that you mentioned Stone, that definitely a huge... Um, I was a, you know, a huge fan of theirs, and uh, at the brewery, they actually became our first distributor, which is pretty cool. Oh, wow. Cool actually, work with them directly. Um, so, yeah, Stone's been a huge influence. Obviously, Sierra Nevada as well for me. Um, Russian River, uh, which was you know, really just a uh, a brew pub at that time. No no bottled beer except for their sour beers. Um, what else? There's so many. I went to college up in Northern California, so, um, you know, Anchor. Um yeah, you mentioned the distribution piece, and that's a piece that a lot of people don't know that much about because it's kind of a niche um, thing, and there are a lot of laws surrounding it. I know Stone, they're a pretty big distributor, you know, alongside of making their own beer too, so, you know, possibly part of their success. But I know I'm from Los Angeles, and down there, it, you're lucky if you can get like one or two bottles of Pliny the Elder you mentioned uh, Russian River Brewing um, right. at Whole Foods or somewhere, and it's you know they have this very small allocation. And up here in Northern California, I was at the grocery store and I saw a whole case full in the cold case of a few hundred. Where it's like, yeah, take as wow. many as you want. So, you know, it, it's very site specific. And I remember hearing stories of back in the day, people would drive to Colorado to pick up I don't know cases or twelve packs or twenty four packs of cores. And right. drive it all the way back to Los Angeles. And people would be like, man, this is the best. This is awesome. 
Is that something, or talk a little bit about that kind of piece in in the business? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, most most craft brewers are you know small enough to where they can't really distribute outside of their local area. Um, so it's a neat thing. It creates regionality when it comes to these beers. So it's you know it's fun to travel and be able to try try beers that you don't get to try at home. Um, adds to that local flavor. And as breweries get larger, then they expand their distribution base. And you know what what was once super sought after and that you would have driven to Colorado for is now available in your local liquor store. And you don't really care anymore. So uh, scarcity and kind of regionality, I think, um, drives a lot of uh, a lot of the fun of craft beer. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think as you mentioned with the brewery and your couple other spinoffs, you you're known for creating beers with you know, kind of different flavor profiles or experimenting with different yeasts. And um, you have kind of the labels and the names are, you know, very stand out. They stand out in that way. Uh, before the podcast, I was asking a few friends who are really into beer and they right away, they kind of lit up and like, yeah, they're known for making some really interesting like flavors and just kind of off the wall and, you know, but real high quality stuff. So how did that kind of come about and how do you tell that narrative through your marketing and through kind of the culture of what you created there? Yeah. And, um, so I guess it kind of starts when I started when I was homebrewing and that I got to make things that just aren't commercially available. Um, you can spend as much money on, as you want on these you know crazy ingredients and there's really no limits to what you can do as a homebrewer where, um, on the commercial side, when you want to sell, you know, sell beer, you need to be at a certain price range or you need to be in the, you know, you have to fit into this box. Um, so I thought, you know, what if we could start a brewery that uh, didn't fit in that box where we could do you know anything just like a home brewer would do, but we're going to price it appropriately. So, you know, if it costs you $20 to make a bottle of beer and you sell it for 40, you know, is there anything really wrong with that? It's, there's going to be a really small market for it, but um, uh, there's, there's not much like that. Um, certainly there's some breweries in, in Belgium, um, that, um, have kind of taken a, a similar approach or, you know, they've, um, um, this, you know, putting their beer into 750 milliliter bottles and in a wine bottle and having pricing that, you know, exceeds $15 or $20 a bottle. Um, I feel I kind of started with Belgian beer and then, um, we wanted to kind of move that forward in the U S market on just making really interesting beers. Yeah, and we're going to get into some of the parallels here with uh, your new brand and your new company, Erosion Wine. Um, but lastly, just on the beer, I think, you know, it might be interesting to talk a little about just the culture of beer, both in Orange County and San Diego. And we've seen it come a long way. And it's now there's just so many brands and there, there's so much great beer out there. I think there's some parallels with wine too. You know, people used to talk about whether it's uh, Robert Parker Jr. or other influences that have just helped kind of raise the bar for wine in general, where there's just a lot of great wine out there where it never kind of used to be the case. And I, mm -hmm. I think that's with everything, whether it's coffee, beer, chocolate, when you look at some of these, you know, small producers that have come up. But in the general area of, let's just call it SoCal, um, was that based on the communities that were forming and friendships and kind of just that subculture or what made it such a hot spot and still continues to be for beer? 
Yeah. Um, well, one thing is a large population certainly helps. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, Southern California is very, um, very collaborative. It's, you know, craft beer kind of started in San Diego County with um, Carl Strauss, Ballast Point, uh, Stone. Um, many great breweries got started there in the, in the nineties and, um, you know, LA and orange County were kind of dead as far as beer went. There was just a few, a few brew pubs, uh, when we were started out, um, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe one, one other commercial brewery. Um, so we would look to San Diego as our, um, you know, that's what we want to try to work towards, um, in building that community that have a, a guild, which, um, allows all of the breweries in uh, san diego county to get together once a month and share ideas and you know put on a festival together and um just just work together and then allows for uh, also connecting with home brewers as well um when you can have a uh kind of a consumer angle of the guild so we did that in orange county and uh, la is doing that uh, really well with their guild and now it's craft beer has exploded and there's you know now hundreds of breweries between uh uh, Orange County and uh, LA County, maybe not hundreds, but over a hundred. Yeah, and so you also became the world's. It looks like eighth master cicerone, um, and wow! I mean, to be kind of even in that top ten for people who don't know, talk about what a master cicerone is and what it took to be able to achieve that. Sure. Um, so the cicerone program is a. Uh, it's a program started by Ray Daniels, who was a, a beer god, uh, definitely a really knowledgeable beer guy. Um, he wanted to create some sort of uh, certification for um, kind of education in beer, kind of like the Guild of Master Somalias um, does in wine, because uh, there just wasn't anything like it. Um, so uh, there's currently four different levels of, uh, of the Cicerone program. And uh, the fourth level is, is the Master Cicerone. So um, pretty much have to work on um, knowing everything about beer, whether it comes to how you serve it, um, to the history behind it, to the methods of production, uh, to the how how you might pair it with food. Um, so it's it's kind of one of those um, really difficult tests. I took it. When did I take it? I think 2014. I passed it. I still have a callus on my finger from from the amount of writing that I had to do. Wow. Uh, it's 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 permanent. I don't know. Um, uh, so uh, really hard test. Uh, it was really great studying for it, and um, uh, yeah, I learned. I thought I knew everything about beer, but I didn't. Um, so it helped. Um, it helped improve my knowledge of beer for sure, especially in areas that I don't. You know, as a brewer, you don't have to deal with, such as you know, serving beer or um, the food pairing portion of it. Yeah, when I found out about this program, I was kind of like, wow, there's kind of like a psalm for beer. And it was really fascinating to me. And I kind of dove in and wanted to learn more right away. Sometimes when you think about becoming a master psalm, you think about the blind tastings and there's the movie that came out and there's, you know, stories that people tell. Were there any blind tastings involved in the test that you took there? Or was it you know mostly written in other types of things? Um, yeah, it's there's all different kinds of portions to the test. It covers two days, and I think it's about ten hours a day. Um, and there's eight different taste, tasting panels. Um, some of them are, um, you know, matching classic styles with the beer. So, you know, what is the style? Um, why do you think that kind of thing? Um, others are uh, picking out off flavors. 
some of those off flavors are, you know, could be fairly typical, like diacetyl or uh, DMS. Others are uh, could be experimental, not quite experimental, but uh, off flavors that haven't really been defined so much. That uh, this company called Aroxa out of the UK uh, comes up with all of these. And, you know, one of them might be that your brewing equipment was tainted by an electrical fire. And what's the, what is the flavor? What is the chemical compound called that uh, would give it that, um, you know, burnt electrical wire sort of taste? Um, so things like that. You didn't have to say the chemical, but you had to kind of describe what the flavor was and how that might, uh, how that might have come about. Um, so interesting stuff. That sounds really interesting, and you're you're really getting granular there, and like you said, diving into almost every aspect. So in 2016, you were named a top 40 under 40 tastemaker by Wine Enthusiast Magazine, um, which is pretty cool. I'm looking at the list here with with some other you know really top names and some really people making waves in the industry here. Let's talk a little about your transition into wine and what you had planned and what you're kind of carrying out with erosion wine company. Yeah. Um, so, uh, as much as, uh, oh, I love beer, but, um, I've, uh, also been drinking a lot of wine. So, um, remember my first trip up to Napa Valley was when I, uh, was the day I turned 21. Um, and, uh, nice. it's been, been one of my favorite places. I, um, I do remember on that trip, I felt so intimidated. Uh, every place that I went to, I didn't feel like I belonged. And as a 21-year-old, I guess maybe you don't belong here in Napa Valley. But um, so erosion is kind of what what is the place that as that 21-year-old, what place would you be, want to be a fan of for life? And then, you know, conversely, I'm 39 now, almost 40. But say when I'm 55, what's a, what's a winery that, um, you know, I would uh, still connect with, even, even though it connected with me at, in, in my youth? Um, I thought it might be a place where we took kind of a similar approach to the brewery where, uh, we're experimenting with, uh, you know, flavor first. Um, we're not, you know, most wineries are focused, at least in Napa Valley are focused on the Appalachian, on the varietal, on a specific vineyard, on the year. Um, I thought, you know, what if that wasn't our focus? What if our focus was creating certain flavor, whether that means blending to achieve that flavor uh, you know, blending young wine with old wine, um, using ingredients that don't typically go in wine, such as, uh, say one of our wines has, uh, cherries. Another one has, um, cacao nibs and vanilla. Um, so just kind of taking a different approach and that does, uh, that, uh, shows up in everything that we do from how we produce it to, um, how we package it. So everything is packaged in cans. Uh, obviously, we're not the first to be packaging in cans, but I think that's a, a huge opportunity for uh, serving size, for convenience, for you know approachability. Um, so yeah, trying to do things just a little bit differently. And I feel like um, there's so many wineries out there, but very few uh, are taking a drastically different approach than than their neighbor. Yeah, there's a saying out there in the entrepreneurial community about how if you're copying someone else, um, that's, you know, had a huge success, you're kind of doing things wrong. And I think I really agree with that. And for you to kind of take a whole new approach, you know, you're still drinking wine. <laughs> um, but, you know, everything from the branding, the packaging, 
like you said, you're doing things a lot different. And um, I think that's really interesting. So first, the packaging here, I'm holding it in my hand, and I, I can, you know, feel the cans and, and, and look at all the colors and the, the actual sleeve that the cans come in. It's everything is, you know, unlike I've ever seen before. Um, talk a little about how you do the design of these labels. And for people, obviously, who can't see it because it's a podcast, you can go to the website. We'll link it in the show notes. And they're just amazing colors and patterns and designs of of all different kind of bright colors and things like that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thank you. We, um, I guess we came up with the design of it by, um, you know, going to the grocery store, you see the canned aisle section or the canned wine section. Um, there's, uh, you know, they come in four packs, kind of, you know, looks a little bit like a craft beer um, might, uh, or it might come in a little box. Um, but in a lot of ways that, you know, cans aren't, they aren't the classiest you know, drinking vessel or the classiest thing to buy wine in. But that's what you see when you buy a canned wine is, is the can itself. Yeah. So I thought, you know, what if we could present it more in a bottle format or more in a format that people are used to? So let's let's vertically stack it, um, which, you know, I think gives you kind of that form factor of a bottle more so than canned wine typically gives you. Yeah, it's beautiful. Like as far as even gifting it to someone, this is like something you wouldn't even have to maybe put a bow on it or just <laughs> maybe just that, you know, it's kind of like wrapped up all in wrapping paper almost itself. And it, it's something you could gift to someone you you could feel good about it as a high quality product opening it at home even or you know, wherever you are, take it out to a picnic or a barbecue or something. So that element is also really cool where it can kind of work either way. Now let's get into some of the names here, um, which are really just kind of fun and uh, sometimes funny names. And I'm reading here about how your daughter has come up with at least some of these names, maybe all of them. Afraid of Clowns, Secret Handshakes, You're So Pretty, uh, The Floor is Lava. So these are these are some of the names here. How did that come about? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Charlotte, our, our nine-year-old, um, just says a lot of random things. And um, I would say for the, you know, with beer, the one of the hardest things is naming naming a beer. Um, mm-hmm. Whether it's, you know, initially coming up with kind of how, how you're going to name things or your naming conventions. Um, so I thought, you know, Charlotte says all these funny things all the time. We've been writing them down. Why don't we use these as, as names? So everything we do is a one-off. Um, so we, we're not going to repeat it again. Um, so how do we come up with constant cool names? And if they're not that cool, we can you know, have something else to blame. Just kidding. Um, I like so. that idea. Now, I don't know if she's going to own some of the intellectual property on, right. on this for years to come, but maybe for her, uh, for her college fund or something like that. Totally. Um, yeah. So let's get every, into... Every, yeah. So every name has like a you know a little story behind it, which is fun. And we're gonna uh, we're starting to record her, or you know we'll do a little interview with her. So you know, what what does this name mean to you? Or how'd you come up with this? And try to capture some of that uh, some of her sense of humor um, to the wine itself. That is cool. So let's talk about the red wines first. Um, these are big, bold red wines. Um, as you said, you're trying to target certain flavors um, on some of them. So let's. Let's just get into some of them first and then maybe talk a little about the, the two different sleeves because they both feature both red and white. Yeah. Uh, as far as the variety packs go or yeah. which one do you want to? Okay. Yeah. Um, 
So we have two different variety packs. They each have uh, three different wines in, in them. Uh, first one, uh, family time, uh, or it's family time, right? Um, is, uh, has our, you're so pretty. So that's a, um, hundred percent Chardonnay that we add, then add, uh, dehydrated sour cherries to, And we let that macerate for about a month. Uh, a little re-fermentation happens. So it's completely dry. And then we'll, we'll, uh, we, Put that into a, a big conical fermenter, essentially a beer tank, uh, what you'd see in a brewery. And we're able to pressurize that to uh, 30 PSI, which is pretty high, and uh, essentially carbonate it in tank and then, then put it in the can. It's uh, really delicious. It's uh, almost a rosé color. It reminds me of like a uh, rosé you might get from Provence, where it's that kind of copper rose gold color. Um, has more acidity than most rosés, which I find really refreshing and uh, it's it's pretty easy drinking. Um, and that cherry really lends a lot of uh, interesting flavors. Uh, we get more strawberry than we do cherry. And uh, cherries tend to uh, lend a hint of like cinnamon, you know, a little bit of spice, uh, which is definitely in this wine in a really subtle but nice way. Yeah, when I sampled it, I noticed the the color, like you mentioned, of kind of being a rosé. And obviously with the, with the cherries in there, it's that's something that probably unlike anybody's ever tried before so that was a really interesting one really refreshing as you mentioned especially with the hot weather out yeah definitely well good so moving on uh, to the yeah the next one here the red wine with the cacao and vanilla bean yeah so secret handshakes um essentially we take a merlot uh merlot base and we add uh, vanilla bean and cacao to it um fairly small amounts we're um we were tasting it once or twice a day to, until it kind of achieved the right flavor. And it only took about four days till, um, till we uh, got the flavor we wanted out of the cacao and vanilla. I feel like the wine already had a little bit of, a uh, little bit of chocolate, a little bit of vanilla from the oak um, already happening. So this kind of amplifies it, uh, makes it really decadent, um, but uh, pretty, pretty smooth uh, kind of velvety wine. And is that, are those actual cacao beans that you're adding or is it an extract from beans or how does that, that process actually look? Yeah, it's uh, actual beans. Um, we get them from uh, a chocolate producer uh, in Berkeley called uh, Cho, T-C-H-O, the great chocolate. So you can uh, buy the, the beans directly from them. I believe most of them are Ecuadorian uh, cacao nibs. And then on the vanilla side, uh, we use the whole beans we just split them down the middle and then we chop them about uh, five times. Uh, so you're trying to get as much flavor. You want to get as much of the uh, kind of the caviar, the seeds on the inside and the oils um, with minimizing the amount of flavor that you're getting from the, um, from the skin itself, which can get a little bit plasticky if you let it extract. Um, so yeah, we get really nice uh, sandalwood sort of flavors. And those, those were from uh, Papua New Guinea. In Papua New Guinea, they actually use two, or they plant two different uh, varietals or varietals uh, species of uh, vanilla. Um, so this is uh, kind of the same one that you get from uh, Madagascar, but they also have the one, uh, the kind of the Tahitian um, species as well, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. And how do you find that people enjoy this or you enjoy this yourself? Is this something where maybe you'll have a little bit for dessert or is this something you pair with a meal or maybe both for me when I tried it, you know, it was unlike anything I had, but it's, it also kind of encapsulates what exactly what you were going for. As you mentioned with the Merlot that already has kind of some of those notes. And then with the, 
cacao and vanilla just really enhancing that and especially with kind of a, a very long finish too yeah i would you know i think it can work for dessert it's not it's not a sweet wine by any measure it's a totally dry but um some of those that vanilla kind of increases or you know it gives you kind of a perception of sweetness because you're so used to having it with uh you know and vanilla ice cream or chocolate or things like that um mm. but i think it works great with ribs or with barbecue in general uh burgers kind of any, anything you'd pair like a syrah with um yeah you know with i think it'd be good with a steak but it doesn't have a huge tannin structure to uh or a lot of acidity um so i feel like you know barbecue would be really nice yeah so this next one here afraid of clowns and i feel yeah. like a lot of people could relate to that name and <laughs> agree with that one this yeah. one is a red wine blend yeah you have to worry you have to be worried of people who aren't afraid of clowns i feel like <laughs> right <laughs> um let's see this one is um it's about half uh, cabernet sauvignon uh, with a good amount of zinfandel and a few other uh, smaller varietals uh, blended in there as well. Um, Tessa reminds us of a, a Grenache or a um, almost like a, a really giant Pinot Noir that still retains some acidity. Um, so it's interesting when you blend together, you know, um, varietals that maybe um, well aren't all that commonly blended together to almost create a flavor of a, another varietal, which you know, this wine has none none of those in. So that's kind of fun. Um, I think it's really, you know, it's an approachable wine. There's still a good amount of acidity. Uh, it's it's big, so I'd say it's uh, it's our balanced wine. If if uh, if we have any balanced wines, right. And then the other variety pack here. Ah, this is living. Um, let's talk about this this sparkling wine first here. Yeah, so sparkler machine. It's uh, super refreshing. Pretty high acid. Very dry. It's half uh, Sauvignon Blanc, half Chardonnay. Sauvignon Blanc, um, uh, you know, you get all those kind of uh, tropical notes from it, a little bit of grassiness, a little bit of like, you know, funky cat pee too. I've never had a cat, so I don't really know the, uh, I know the, I know the cat pee aroma, but I, um, I can't, I don't connect it with cats. So it comes off as pretty pleasant to me. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's funny you mentioned that because I had at least one or two people mention that on the podcast about, you know, kind of that, that cat pee Sauvignon Blanc. And I've, I've never had cats either. So immediately I was kind of trying to think about it and I, I'm sure I've, you know, I believe I've smelled it at least once or twice, but I, it was hard for me to kind of make that connection, but it, I, apparently that's a big thing for people where they don't want any, any piece of that, but there are a lot of people out there where they wouldn't even know, I guess, and it, maybe it wouldn't right. bother them at all. So, yeah, totally. <laughs> that, that is funny. Now, you mentioned a mix between Sauv Blanc and Chardonnay. That's also kind of something you don't see uh, many places either, which which is interesting. Yeah, and the Chardonnay was a uh, pretty early harvest, so super high acid. Um, the Sauvignon Blanc has there's a little bit of Semillon in there as well, so it's a pretty nice round wine on its own. Uh, where the Chardonnay kind of gives it a little bit of, of a pop as far as the acidity goes. Um, but yeah, I love this wine. It's it's one of those that between this and you're so pretty, like I'm embar- a little embarrassed to say, but we drink it by the pool just right out of the can. And uh, yeah, I definitely want our wines being consumed out of, you know, proper glassware when possible. But um, these two wines are just, they're so good to have just out of the can in a very casual setting. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, especially with the uh, hot weather. 
uh, right now. And maybe if it's a home pool, I guess, or you're socially distanced at the beach, then people can, um, can pick up some wine and enjoy the summer. Now yeah. let's go into the Flores Lava, which is uh, denoted here as a red wine, um, different from the red wine blend from, from the other one we talked about. Um, this wine, you know, when I tried it again, just rich, bold, big, you know, in your face. Talk a little about this one here. Yeah. Um, so this one I would, I would kind of classify as, or I would put into the, uh, the classy wine category. I feel like um, you could have a, you know, blind taste of some on this and they would be like, Oh, you know, it's, you know, this is a $150 bottle from Napa. So uh, at least that's what, that's what I hope people view it as. Um, it, yeah. It's hard to believe that it comes out of a can. It's um, a big, you know, it's about 98% Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, it's from uh, Coombsville. And, um, you know, it has a little bit, uh, a lot of red fruit character, um, a lot of oak to it. Um, just, just a, a giant wine uh, with uh, still some acidity. And of any of our wines, it's probably like the most overtly panic that all of our wines are made to consume as soon as we release them. So I think it's, you know, really approachable right now. Um, but if you're going to, if you're going to have that steak, I think this is the one to pair it with. Perfect. And then the last one here, how big, um, and this one looks like kind of the highest ABV of, of all the wines. And, and, and then again, this one is a red wine blend. Yeah. So this one's about 75% cab. And then, uh, let's see, we use some, uh, forgetting the varietals for this one. Anyway, some Merlot, some Petit Syrah, I think are the other two major varietals that are in this one. And, um, yeah, basically we, we describe things in terms of their, the tasting notes. So on the back, so, um, so yeah, so how big, um, generally, you know, we don't describe things in terms of varietals on the packaging, but since I think, uh, your audience probably appreciates to hear, you know, what varietals are we're using, yeah. uh, 75% cab, um, a bit of uh, a petite Syrah and a bit of Merlot. So basically we wanted to make the kind of the big, biggest wine possible, um, in terms of alcohol, that's not our, our mission, but this one is big at 16%. Um, and then we tend to describe things in terms of what what it's like to, to drink this wine. Um, so I don't have the label with me, but you know, if you purchased a tube of uh, how big it would, uh, something like, you know, amorously deep in a blackberry thicket with a, you know, a campfire in the distance. So nice. <laughs> whatever that means, I'm, you know, I'm not sure, but it sounds pretty good. Or uh, say the floor is lava. The floor is lava is um, a one night stand with a spice merchant. Um, (laughs) Whatever that means to you. But um, anyway, try to have these kind of fun ways of describing the wine that maybe gives you a little bit of a hint of what it's like um, with, uh, but with still allowing you to taste it yourself and come up with your own, um, you know, your own judgment on what it tastes like. So this one is uh, kind of my unapologetically hedonistic wine that um, has, you know, has big tannins, but it's very um, well balanced with just the, the hugeness of the wine. It tastes like there's some little bit of residual sugar, but there isn't um, big blue fruits. And um, you know, I think our addition of the petite Syrah um, gave it this really nice spice character um, that I just love. Yeah, and I'm looking here in the back of the package, and it shows how three cans equal to one bottle. 
which is also kind of nice if you're, let's say you are, you know, alone or you have a partner um, even, then maybe you want to, you know, try a couple different cans. And then, you know, a lot of people now are, they have to buy a Coravin or they, you know, have some other way where they're, they're trying to extend the bottle for, for a couple days. So you don't drink the whole bottle in, in one sitting, let's say, um, or maybe you want to try some variety. So you want to start with a, a white and then you move on to a red. So I feel like this is also a great way for people to do that too. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, we've had these cans out just or had them out just for a few days, but, uh, and in my house, we've been having them at home for the last two, a few weeks and, um, gosh, you know, it's, it's hard to open a, bo- a bottle now. I really have to make a decision on whether, you know, yeah. I want to try two or three different wines tonight, or do I want to be committed to a, a single bottle of wine? Yeah. Being able yeah. To, you know, start off your night with a beer and finish it with a wine is really nice too, where you don't typically do that if you have to open up a bottle and just want you or someone else with you. Yeah, and that's where I think you know progress, and if you want to even say innovation in the in the wine space is you know coming a long way as far as packaging and serving size, and we have to think about all these different things as we move to kind of the next generation of consumers. I think broadly here, when you look at these wines, as you mentioned, um, you know you've talked in the past about some of your influences in wine, whether it's uh, Russell Bevan from Bevan Cellars or kind of the styles of wine that you like. Um, yeah, talk a little about how some of those influences. Well, first, some of the wines that you like, and then some of the the influences on erosion. Boy, I like so many different wines, but um, let's say for the style that we're going for, um, you know, I, probably my uh, my epiphany for these giant wines from Napa is probably uh, Lewis Cellars. Um, you know, I, I love their cabs um, and their straws are awesome too. Um, probably the Hillstone, uh, I think it's the Hillstone Vineyard Cab uh, is amongst my favorite of what Lewis makes. Um I know, you know, Camus, I love their special select. It's a giant, giant beast of a wine that um, to me has like a little bit of like an eggnog note to it. So fun. Um, and, you know, Bevan Cellars with the Tench Vineyard. Um, just these, um, I don't know. There are wines that you can take very seriously and, you know, can, you know, drink over hours or there are wines that you can just like really just love and just, you know, drink up. They, they're a little pricey, so I don't like to drink too fast if uh you know try to savor it for the night but <laughs> right um, but you know we want to make wines that people just want to uh you know just want to drink um so i feel like those are the or, you know wines that are like that um let's see uh the, the mascot from um that uh will harlan and you know the harlan family put together i think is just um another one of those wines there's so much complexity to it but uh there's also an approachability where you can yeah, you can drink that one pretty easily. Um, and uh, I don't know, just, there's so many. Uh, yeah, that I one guess. is is a really good value, too, for people who know about Harlan and, and the mascot. Sorry, go ahead. I, I cut you off there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Um, and then, you know, outside of Napa, Herman Story um, makes these amazing Grenache and Syrahs. Um, and uh, mostly from, from Paso and Santa Barbara counties. Um, yeah, just wonderful, huge wines. Uh, and, you know, Cine Quanon is, is awesome. Uh, obviously a huge or really hard one to afford and impossible to get on the list. So, um, 
definitely those are those are good ones. If you if you're at a tasting and you see some crazy looking bottle and it's that, then you know, walk walk that direction. But um, hard to hard to you know pay for it yourself at four hundred to six hundred dollars a bottle. Yeah, I've, and I've tasted well most of the ones that you just named. Or at least had a, a little sip, at least <laughs> depending on the the price or where I was. Uh, but you know, when I taste these wines here from Erosion, you, you're getting that that flavor profile. You're getting that that richness and complexity. So I think that's something people can look forward to and kind of expect from Erosion of that certain level and that certain bar where. You might think of opening up a canned wine and you might have a certain, I don't know, flavor profile. You you have a certain kind of idea of what it is, but this is definitely not that, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to think of can or people think of canned wines as being a category under itself. And you're exactly right. People know what to expect when they crack open that can. You know, this is a wine that's made for uh, not thinking too much about. And it's, you know, it's going to be good, but it's, um, you know, to have by the pool and give to your friends and, you know buy 20 of and get rid of them the same day um where you know this is i feel like this is just wine that or great wine that just happens to be packaged in the can i hope that increases the amount of chances you have to to enjoy it and we want to be at a price level that um you know isn't prohibitive you know at the highest we're at 59 dollars for a 750 milliliter equivalent and then uh, our sparkling wines are 29 dollars per 750 so you know not not in it Definitely expensive for canned wine, but not inexpensive for Napa Valley uh, wine. Um, so we try to try to be a value there. Yeah, and lastly, let's talk about just how you go about sourcing grapes and actually the winemaking duties and how how much you're involved and maybe you know other people from the team and actually the production of the wine itself. Yeah, um, so we source from about uh, 20 different vineyards all over uh, Napa Valley, from Carneros you know, all the way up to Calistoga. And it's probably easier to say what appellations we haven't sourced from than ones we have. Wow. Uh, um, so I hope to get something from every appellation at some point. And, um, you know, this is all about, all about uh, experimenting and trying, you know, seeing what different flavor profiles we can get. So uh, we try not to have a, a house flavor profile for anything. Um, you know, try to uh, be able to play with a lot of different flavor profiles, if that makes sense, and styles of winemaking. Um, and we, when we actually go to make the wine, uh, we want to be, we want to put our resources into uh, technology and improving, improving the wine as much as we can while minimizing the cost. Um, so we, we have an optical sorter. That's awesome. So we, um, you know, we can purchase grapes that are at a reasonable price level, uh, maybe add or a little bit below what the average price in Napa Valley is for that varietal. And, um, you know, what can we do to maximize that grape? And part of it is removing leaves and, um, stems and having a really clean fruit come in. And then when we go to, you know, ferment it uh we're using some interesting maceration methods we have uh, pulse air which is really gentle on seeds um but um, really tears apart the skins so we're getting huge uh, color and huge flavor development while minimizing seed tannin which is often responsible for you know some of the really harsh tannins in wine where you might want to sell or something for 10 years uh we, we don't want that uh, we want our wines to be approachable pretty early also using a lot of oxygen during uh, fermentation to um, to round out those tannins as well. 
in some of our tanks, we have more uh, use more of a pump over method. We can do it, you know, with uh, using oxygen or with you know, in a or in a closed um, way where we're not introducing oxygen. Same thing with pulse air. We can use nitrogen if we're say we have Grenache. Uh, Grenache doesn't you know do well or oxidizes really easily, so we can avoid oxygen with that or with our white wines. Obviously, we we don't need to do that. Um, so try and then some of them we're just punching down very manually. So I try to have a lot of different tools to work with based on the flavor that we want to achieve. And when we actually go to age the wine, uh, we do almost everything in tank. Um, we have a range of 250 gallon tanks to, <coughs> excuse me, uh, to like a 4,000 gallon tank. Most of them are in the 350 to 500 gallon range. So basically, uh, we have a lot of individual lots. We try to age it all separately and then decide to be able to work with a lot of different blends. We want to have them as separate as possible. Uh, so I think we have over 50 different uh, lots of wine that we have to work with. And then uh, when we uh, go to, or as far as oak goes, we use uh, large uh, oak staves. Um, thankfully, the oak alternative market has become much better, I think, in the last five years. Um, so now I think, you know, you're able to get a very close level to oak quality that you'd get in a barrel um, with using very large pieces of wood with the grain uh, going the same direction as it uh, would in a barrel um, and uh, to where the toasting level is essentially the same as you'd get from a barrel. But uh, with barrels, you know, they're 90% um, furniture, uh, 10% a you know, holding vessel. Um, but, you know, the flavor, only 10% of the actual oak uh, being used in a barrel is impacting the flavor of the wine. Um, so with adding oak, we're able to use you know, 100% new oak every time um, and uh, do so at a fraction of the price of using barrels. Um, so from an economic and environmental point of view, I feel like um, uh, it's, a, it's a good thing to do. And I think more of the industry will follow that. It also allows us to use a small amount of square footage we have in the most efficient way. And then as far as oxygen goes, you know, oak barrels do provide a, you know, as much as they provide oak, they provide oxygen as well. So uh, we use a micro-oxygenation device. Um, you know, sometimes we don't have to use them at all. Uh, sometimes we use them when uh, we have some rougher tannins that we want to settle out. And uh, using a pretty cool product for that called the Wine Grenade that uses um, this permeable tubing. Uh, I think it's like silicone tubing. So rather than you know, most micro-oxygenation systems are using um, little carbonation stones almost uh, or like a you know a little fish tank uh stone and you see bubbles going through that works for you know a ten thousand gallon tank but doesn't work for a 350 gallon tank um so this allows uh the same or even less oxygen than you uh, receive from a barrel or more if you want to speed up the process but uh really dial in your oxygen levels um yeah yeah, well, that was a great explanation for people who want to get a little more in the weeds and get a little more technical. We're going to link the wines here in the show notes so people can, uh, you know, click the link, check out the website, buy some wine, maybe even go back and listen to the episode while you're sipping on some of these wines. Lastly here, let's talk about the tap room in St. Helena. And I know things are changing so rapidly and almost from, from day to day or from week to week. But right. uh, let's talk about if people want to kind of swing by and pick wine up. 
Cool. Yeah, uh, so we're at 1234 Main Street. Easy one to remember. Uh, right in downtown St. Helena. Nice and, address. <laughs> yeah, isn't that nice? We, um, so currently we are only open on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays from noon to five. Um, our plan was to be open seven days a week from 11 to seven, uh, for tasting, but, uh, it's an all indoor tasting room and we're currently not allowed to, to do that right now. Um, so, uh, we're looking into getting some outside seating along the streets. Um, so hopefully in the near future, you can come tasting with us and, uh, Especially uh, when, when once we have a vaccine, um, then then we'll get rolling again. Um, but it's a really cool tap room. Uh, my wife and uh, uh, our friend and designer uh, Lucille Buell uh, designed this amazing amazing tap room. We have twenty four wines on tap. Um, so in addition to what we put into these uh, these primary, um, you know, we call them tubes or three can packs. We haven't really settled on a name yet. Um, so those are kind of our major, uh, you know, most of our production is going towards those can packs. Um, but we also make, you know, dozens of different wines a year that we do on a super small um, scale. So anywhere from like 30 to 60 gallons. And we'll put those on tap and see what people like before we, you know, commit to putting anything in the, in the tube. So a lot of uh, kind of adventurous uh, one-off wines uh, you can try with us if you come visit us. Nice. Well, Patrick, really appreciate having you on. And um, that gives people something to look forward to once you open up. And in the meantime, can still swing by and pick up some wine. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.